0: Hello and welcome to uh, this episode of Dynamics Update. And uh, uh, with me as usual, I have uh, Gustav. Hello, Gustav. Hello, everyone. And something that is a bit different this time is that we actually have a guest. Normally, we just discuss uh, features in the release notes, but this time we actually have a guest. Uh, We have Paul Heisterkamp. Hello, Paul. Hello.
1: Hi, guys. How are you doing today? I'm fine. And uh, thank you for having me here on your podcast.
2: Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So uh, for those of you who don't know you, who who are you?
1: Yeah, I'm Paul. Um, I'm a um, solution architect from Germany. Um, and I'm an MVP and uh, fast track recognized solution architect. And I'm a big one version advocate and I think we will discuss this topic further today. <laughs> yes, yes, ex- exactly. And that, that, was, um,
0: that was actually sort of my, my f- first, um, first subject here. When I read your LinkedIn, it, it says one version advocate. And I, I just wanted to, because I, I sort of feel the same way. And I know that a lot of people in the in the AX community maybe not always think as one of one version as something good. Uh, it's more of a of a big hassle. So, uh, where do you stand in this discussion?
1: Yes, some time ago or years ago, um, I also was not that uh, positive about one version. It was uh, the time. When we had to migrate or reimagine our AX 2012 solution to yeah. um, FNO and the whole ecosystem. And after some time, the whole uh, application and so on got sealed, and you had to migrate everything to extension. And once this one was finished and we had a cloud ready solution, ISV solution, um, the fun began, let's say. Um, but of course also the work behind um, keeping up w- with the pace of microsoft uh, also began there
0: yeah, and i think that's where most people get off on the wrong foot they they see this as microsoft just trying to mess with you and and uh, yeah destroy your planning
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah but in all fairness i mean it's it's a different thing to look at the cloud platform uh, what it is today with extens- extensibility and the whole ceiling, what, what we can do now leveraging the power platform, et cetera. So I understand exactly what you mean, Paul. That it was a struggle, to be honest. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I think Microsoft hadn't, of course, thought everything out as well on their end. So it was a struggle then, but I think it's important now. I share that uh, that advocate, advocate feeling that now you really need to put and stress the, the good points with the cloud solution because they are mature, I would say, at least mature enough to not mitigate staying on on the old and, now, and I think the balance here is that the, the old legacy or the um, well the legacy way of working has so much disadvantages now compared to this the, the more modern workforce and modern platforms so it's uh, it's not comparable like 3 years ago what it is today but it's still same story basically it's just more mature now would you share that opinion
1: yeah and you uh, are getting a lot of uh, amazing features uh, every mm. a month or two And, uh, yeah, there are that much that you are are not able to uh, keep up with exploring all of them. Um, But that is, uh, of course, one space your podcast is uh, filling there. Um, But, yeah, we um, went live with one of our customers, uh, I think, on platform version 5. And I think now we are almost on forty-five. Yeah. So uh yeah it was not fun going uh, into those uh no,
2: lives the old AX7 that's <laughs> really yeah the, the old a- X7 yeah right but, but, X7. but
0: also i think that one of the big things here is that it's it's such a big uh, concept change from from what we were used to on on 2012 because i unlike gustav i've I've not worked with dynamics that long i've I've been in the game for like six years or so and i'm I'm coming from um the more of the infrastructure side where we have had windows updates since two thousand or something like that hmm. uh which means that we were used to updating things basically everything we had on our computers we were used to updating every single month anyway so the first question i had when i came in was so so how do we handle updates hmm. and basically the the answer i got between the lines was we don't yeah we never so the... upgrade because it's yeah. a hassle yeah. it doesn't and and i was at my previous company for i think it was 4 years or so and during that time we did a lot of like um uh, new projects for 2012 and and we did like uh, RFps and so on and never one single time was one of the requests we need to be able to update <laughs> yes
1: yeah, never so, so the even the uh, move from a cumulative update to the next one was uh, yeah uh, the hustle of updating multiplied by hundred in uh, in the comparison to um, F&O currently. So all all our um, last updates ran um, through extremely smooth, of course, with a lot of testing effort before. But um, uh, if you test your um, systems um, like regression testing, then you are fine to um, update the production.
2: Yeah, and isn't that kind of the, one of the biggest, I mean, mental shifts for a lot of organizations as well as technical well, groups? I mean, to, that shift from having to, when when you don't update, you only need to test that little feature that you're actually going live with, right? But now you really need to implement a full organization-wide testing uh, mentality as well, right? I, I think that's for me at least, that's one of the biggest Changes. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It's a, it's an important thing to drive through when you're discussing the both for transitioning to cloud and also, well, like getting a new system or also just making sure you stay stable, right? Uh, Paul, what is your, I mean, the biggest change? I'm not going to say disadvantage, but the biggest change uh, from um, moving to cloud, from, from transitioning from um, on-prem. Is that kind of in the same line or did, did you see anything else in your experience?
1: Yeah, in our case, uh... The biggest change was to uh, reinvent all those solutions that previously worked with uh, local files so bringing that one into let's say blob storages or um, service bus queues and building up the whole integration and communication with uh, legacy still existing on-prem systems I think that was the biggest challenge, and also we had uh, solutions r- relying on Windows services and bringing them into the the cloud with Kubernetes and all this uh, <laughs> yeah. fancy stuff. Uh, that that was the biggest shift. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think I think one of the things uh, in before in AX 2012 was that since you had the AIF and you had. The, the the ability to integrate through files, I think that that was the easiest and simplest solution to use. So that's why you used it. And now all of a sudden, that path is almost not even available anymore because it's, it's really a, a lot of extra work.
1: Yeah. And also um, read-only access to the production database yeah. was possible. Yeah? yeah. And this was also cut it away, and yeah. <laughs> you had to um, rethink all those um, integrations, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think that's also one of the points I was discussing earlier. I mean, now we had BYOD as a kind of a replacement for that solution where you could use Azure SQL, but that's also been struggling a little bit when it comes to, and now we have the Azure Data Lake source. We're getting a lot of features added to kind of replace what we had before, but that's been a really big problem for a lot of um, well volume-intense um, companies I would say as well that whole but in, in all essence it's a good thing because you you cannot expect to have this in a so normalized database that we have in Dynamics but that mental shift and as you say making use of, of um, tools that maybe the organization isn't used to, used to at least you need to have some kind of key um, component like BizTalk or Logic Apps or something that can leverage that access between on-prem and, and cloud and it's not the always not always easy, right? You still—I still sure. had still a character encoding issue and a customer site uh, Dynamics 365 <laughs> issue. They still—they're still there. It's still a in the background. It's just where the problem occurs kind of has moved, right? And hopefully less problems than we had before.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, and also the um, the need of leveraging automated testing is uh, mm. more there than ever. I'm not talking about our set because in our, our case we haven't uh, yeah kept up with our set so much but we heavily relying on unit testing and this test framework so coded um, process tests and um, even unit test and these are our uh, backbone for um, let's say um, restructuring uh, things or refactoring and also um, testing on your versions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also one of my more technical questions or not questions about how, how to how to make that work. RSAT is one tool and RSAT was also provided by Microsoft to kind of they see this they see the issue here that we need to restructure the way of testing. And RSAT is a good tool but it also kind of you need to have at least two fully employed people working with your RSAT test cases basically. And that's really a mental shift as well for a lot of people. You need to have full time at least resources or FTEs working to to understand your architecture, to understand what you need to test. It's not enough to just build stuff. You need to really make sure that you have it covered. And RSAT is good, but it doesn't cover a full end-to-end perspective. So you still need to have other stuff to do automated testing, right?
1: Yeah. And for uh, RSAT, in our case, it is always that you need a full um, featured uh, test manager. So... Who is able to structure test cases, to modulize test cases? So it is not only the key user or functional consultant that is able to record robust, um, complex test cases
2: um, because it
1: isn't that easy.
2: No. No, oh, absolutely. It's very, it's a very complex thing, and it's also a very alive thing. And again, boils down to what you mentioned as well. You that before we don't update, yeah, because and then you really need to just everything you calculate that you build, you you need to take that into account. Now you need to update, but you always need to start with the testing, and you need to involve it in the same in the same way. And from from my perspective, uh, you you get a lot of questions. Oh, won't that be more expensive? But I think if you boil it down and if you you do this do the math and, and calculate, it's actually cheaper now because you don't have to spend so much time regression testing or with production outages when you don't when you don't test for your updates. So it's a lot of it's hard to say but I think if you in the end it's cheaper to actually do it this way even if you have to add another resource to, to maintain your tests uh, because production stops and like systems instability is a lot more expensive than just adding a little two few lines of code, code for testing I would say. But that's my opinion. I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I think we're all on, <laughs> on that level. But it's an important for me that one of the challenges with, with OneVersion is kind of explaining it because a lot of people see it as a technical thing. Yeah, you're forced to have updates every month or you're forced to do this, you're forced to do this. You are, but it's, it's with some flexibility. And the whole point with OneVersion is to, to gain system stability, right? And to have the same experience across and to make sure that you can. You don't have to rebuild something, which is like specifically from a legal requirement perspective. You don't have to build everything from scratch to cover SEPA or whatever experience that you have. You can. You can look at how it's done, and it's coming as a standard feature because you can implement it. I I did a SEPA project for AX two thousand nine, and it took like six months because of all of the customizations they'd done before. They had to implement the standard code from Microsoft, and that took longer than just enabling the feature. So I think that's um, one of the my main cases I always bring up when, when you discuss, but you had to provide legal requirements before as well. Yes, you did, but you had to also implement them. And that's, I think it's more complex in a customized environment than it is in, in one version.
0: So one of the things that I, I heard you mention was uh, unit testing and, uh, and so on. And I think, I, I mean, f- from my end, um, that's one of the areas where we haven't really, uh, been that good at? Uh, I am not a developer, so I'm I'm not I'm not really uh, working with that part of the stack. But I think also that that is one challenge that we're having is that the people who are developing for Dynamics are used to develop for AX, and we didn't have those kind of development tools for AX. <laughs> we had the AOT, and now all of a sudden we have uh, the whole Visual Studio. Uh, set up uh, at our fingers and we can use it the way the rest of the world's developers is
1: using it. Almost. (laughs) Almost. But the fun fact here is uh, we already had uh, those unit tests in 2012. Uh, That was harder to uh, automate the execution um, every night, which is now um, easier, but uh, we heavily rely on that So we have um, unit tests, even thousands in every of our ISV solutions and also uh, on the customer project uh, individual uh, level. And the unit testing stack is uh, growing that much in our project that um, our developers complaining about too long builds during gated check-in and pull requests because of uh, a test execution of two hours or something like that because we have that much, te- much yeah. test so but that secures uh, a lot but of course it is uh, also a in big invest
2: yeah it's, absolutely and i mean that's from an isv as well you have you guys have an isv that you maintain but it's uh it's important to i mean the dream world is maybe not two hours of execution of testing but i, I get your point that the dream world is to, to have that as well for for all clients and all customer-based installations as well because as you say the the end goal is not to like have as gated a check-in as possible the end goal is to have a system stability and to prevent issues and to prevent production outages as well so i think as long as you have a balanced a balanced way of seeing it that way um, maybe you don't need two hours of unit testing or automated executions of tests in a smaller customer environment, but you need to have it in, a, in an ISV product because you're maintaining a lot of customer data. So the balance question is always there, but but um, and I remember once being in, in Seattle with AX 2012 and um, and uh, asking the Microsoft technician, then why don't you release your test cases for, for AX 2012 so we can just make use of them. But he had a very good case then because he said, let's say we have 7 million lines of X++ code in 2012. We maybe have 14 million lines of test cases in test code in our internal. If we release those, are we then responsible for them? So it's more important that you... Because a test case is applicable for that environment, right? So you can you can build test cases that are applicable for one version that you can reuse, but they are not really good for usage unless you've tested that they are valid for your use case. So it's still always customer-specific in, in that case. So I think you had a very good point.
1: And my feeling is that... Um, those people are um, always talking about releasing the test cases for um, standard code, Mm. kind of um, uh, uh, hiding themselves uh, behind the statement to not start their own um, test implementation. So if you are used to um, building those tests, it is not that much extra effort. And because of that, we have it... Almost everywhere in our ISV solutions and also on uh, on the customer implementation project. So it is worth the effort, um, and we found a lot of regressions um, with this tool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As a detailed question from my specific to ISV. I mean, are you guys, uh, you have issues with uh, using chain of command, right? From an ISV perspective because of the nature of chain of command. How it, how, it, how, it, um, how with, with ISVs combined with other ISVs in custom code at customers. Is that something that your test, you build test cases to kind of catch or is it mainly specified to, for your product? I mean, when you have your test cases, because I would imagine it's impossible to catch everything, right? Specifically when you implement an ISV alongside a different ISV. So if they are using chain of command and you are using chain of command on, on the same class, that's something you're, that you guys are having challenges with?
1: Yeah, of course, we had those problems um, because... We not only have one ISV, we have, I think, 10 or 12, and we combine them on the customer needs. Yeah, uh, of course. For example, pricing solution is always mandatory, and but archiving is not always mandatory, and mm. so on. And then, of course, you have this situation that you have chain of command in the ISV, and chain of command um, in the customer code in the implementation Mm. project and of course then you have sometimes challenges but we've built up our ISV or restructured um, these points in the code um, that we do not have challenges but of course uh, those problems happen and then we implement uh, let's say guard uh, tests on the customer level because everything comes together.
2: Okay, got us. That's a very good, that's a very good uh, saying. I say okay, thank you. Uh, I think that's also one of the one more example of Microsoft providing a solution to an issue, the, the overlaying issue. A lot of people trying to transition, as well as a lot of cases. I mean, I don't know how many extensibility support tickets are, are logged nowadays, because now I think it's so mature that you you should be able to to cope with it. But um, it's a nice feature to have, but it does has have its drawbacks. I was just suspecting that it might be a lot of um, issues specifically for ISVs. (laughs) Yes,
1: this this situation in nowadays is in our case that if we find um, extensibility issues, we uh, simply fix them ourselves via community-driven engineering because then we can build it as we need it. And of course, Microsoft uh, has to approve, but uh, this way is brilliant.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a very good point.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I th- I think the community driven engineering project really speaks to how Microsoft intends this to work, because yes. I, I I caught on to the one the thing you said before that uh, people or often use Microsoft's test cases as an excuse not to implement their own, because they're saying Mm -hmm. we don't have Microsoft's test cases. And that's one of the points that I've been driving in like sessions and and blog posts and so on as well, is that somewhere, and and because we went through exactly the same thing on the infrastructure side, we tested every single patch that Microsoft released every single month. That doesn't happen anymore we sort of rely on the fact that microsoft most of the time know what they're doing. uh we we need to somehow i mean if we if you're not going to work ourselves to death, death, we need to trust that the code that microsoft releases most of the time is fine. we can't use that as an excuse anymore and that comes to the point that you were saying about the test cases that I mean, Microsoft can't be an excuse for us not to do our job. We need no, to yes. do our job as well as possible. And then, of course, I, I'm not saying that we don't test Microsoft things, but somewhere on on the trust chain, we need to understand that Microsoft has no interest in screwing with our code.
2: No, and I mean it's a, it's hard to to you don't you can't compare testing code towards and specifically for ERP. It's so complex, right? And now with all the feature management, you, if you want if you want to trust Microsoft setup, then you need to run a vanilla version with all the features enabled at that same exact version as as Microsoft is testing, with kind of the same data as well. Hopefully, you're in the US. Then you might be quite safe running only relying on those tests. But who is who is there, right? No one is running that except for Microsoft's tests and solutions, right? So it's uh, the feature management and all the different parameters, and I so I've never seen a vanilla. D365 environment, and I don't suspect I will, um, nowhere soon. So, I mean, it's it's all about your specific needs and your specific testing. You can start from that, uh, absolutely. It's a good to have a base plate to run with, but they always need to be tailored to your needs, I would say. But feature management is a good good point, because
1: with uh, 10.021, I think, they have those enabled by default features, and this one uh, crashed at least one feature um, of one of our ISVs because with an um, enabled by default feature, the whole implementation switched from a version 1 interfacing to a version 2 interfacing. And our extension and implementation was on version 1. Of course, there was those warnings about uh, feature deprecation and so on. But um, yeah, we kind of ignored it or didn't (laughs) saw it. uh, uh, And then, um, yeah. We um, yeah run into problems there, but the good thing there was that uh, you simply can disable this feature and this um, switch back everything to version bar-
0: Yeah, but I, th- I think also that is part of Microsoft's problem here, because if the customers doesn't turn on the features, they actually don't see if there are issues with the features. Exactly. That, that's the pro. I mean, one of the ways that they found out if there was issues is that we report errors. That's why I've always been saying that every single issue that you're having, you need to report it because my, that's the way. I mean, you might be in a situation where you have a, a very niche setup, and Microsoft won't be testing your niche setup, but you will, and they still want to fix it. So you need to report it, and and the problem is that if everyone leaves all of the features turned off we will never get to a point where the features actually get get high enough quality yeah. Yeah. it's kind of
2: the same discussion we had with uh, the ceiling of, of the software right but now it's on, on feature level at some point also the way uh, with license um, hard license um, uh, checks will be implemented at some point in time so you just need to kind of stay on top uh, to, to catch it we're trying to raise that in this pod as well and uh, these Look at what is being deprecated. Uh, but sometimes you miss it, of course, and that's that's just the way it is. But if you have good testing, then at least you don't get a production outage. And like you say, Paul, you can just switch it off for now, at least. That's very good. We
1: found it in uh, pre-prod, so not in prod, so everything is okay. But
0: I, I was just thinking, uh, since you are developing a, an ISV, uh, which you send to customers, is then your recommendation that you shouldn't turn on this feature, or is do you, I mean, what, what kind of demands that Microsoft set on you in order to deliver a product that they can stand behind, so to speak?
1: In this case, um, it is that we for now tell uh, them uh, to turn it off. But of course, the uh, transition to V2 um, is in the making. So we are aligning with that. And um, in our case, it is not always that we deliver ISVs solutions to uh, our customer. It is more that we are doing implementation projects by using our ISVs. So we have a a very small subset of um, ISVs solution that we sell independently. But the um, major part is uh, that complex and that uh, consulting um, needed that we use them in implementation projects. Hmm. Okay, so you are
0: basically using some of your ISVs as your IP instead of, of starting from, from a blank page at the customer. You use yeah. these as as building blocks to build the complete. That's really, really smart. I have not heard anyone doing that before because, I mean, partners tend to sort of start from scratch.
1: No, we are um, um, starting everything with our... Um, isv and add-on stack let's say and um, some of our isv solutions are also on AppSource. source but um, the um, major part of um, our uh, business unit for f and o is doing um, implementation project based on uh, our isv solutions and we are growing our isv solutions also during projects so We, um, as our solution architecture team, um, identifying um, requirements that are, um, let's say, uh, spread over all our customers or needed by other customers. And these um, developments get added to our ISVs solutions and the others um, remain in the implementation projects uh, on customer level
0: that's really interesting that's smart i haven't heard anyone doing that before i mean most isvs are just isvs they are selling a product to Mm. customers or to via partners but but they're not using it as a as a non-public
2: ISV so to speak and I think that's also one of the drivers of the one version, I mean one of the the discussions of Evergreen is that it puts a heavy emphasis on the Uh the client running the system, that it's their system and you can have a partner who implements it but it's it's not the classic way of building and then just forgetting it and moving away because you're never going to update anyway right, (laughs) so you need to really build the knowledge and you need to build the competence at the client side together with a partner or an implementation consultant that helps you out but then leaves the customer in charge of that client of that installation basically and that's um, if you have ISV's components to help help on that journey that's a very smart thing that I agree so so paul what do you see as the greatest challenge or uh, how do you look on the future of dynamics 365 what's um, uh, what's the biggest thing that's going to change in the next <laughs> there is no next version really but uh, how do you see on the future for dynamics 365 whatever we're calling it now i don't remember anymore
1: <laughs> i'm very interested in the future of the conversions between FNO and the whole dataverse power platform how this ends yeah mm-hmm. and what i'm also um, yeah looking forward to that microsoft uh, is um, putting more and more um, specific processes into microsoft services and uh, yeah i'm looking forward to the next one that uh, is popping up sometime uh, but yeah that's the. I think that's the future of the um, ERP to do um, non-ERP related operations in a sub-system to um, scale it out and do not put uh, everything into the ERP.
2: Super interesting. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I think you know, that the whole microservices oriented architecture was another topic but I mean you and you've already had it uh, discussing on on the on DynamicsCon. you also had a presentation on the inventory visibility I think right another market microservices architecture so I think that and that specifically is another um, pet peeve of mine that inventory visibility app, the whole scaling out that very very resource intense on hand question I know there was a big issue in retail before with the everything looking at the invent some table you know all, all of those issues so I, I I share that opinion with the microservices oriented architecture it's just nice to see how it's um it's fit to scale out as you say you wonder you have an, an, uh, another opinion on the future or are we in line no
0: i i i actually i actually think the same and and the inventory visibility uh, add-in also uh, speaks to a point that i've been having since i saw uh, dynamics for the first time it's actually that the data within FNO is much more accessible than it used to be in AX. First mm. of all, it's a cloud installation, of course. it It is in the cloud, it's available, it's, it's there to, to be able to be used. But you also use standard protocols to query data, to look at data, to import data, which is not a lot of the things that we did in, in AX was things that we needed to build ourselves. And, and we usually built it in a way where it was custom- made for the customer that we worked with, we didn't build it according to any standard, because we didn't need any standard because it was just us using it. But that's what I really like having the, the standard O data set up, having uh, like the, the REST APIs. That's, I think that's a really good point here. And, mm-hmm. and the inventory visibility is just another step, making new data available as an API instead of having it as a, a as a proprietary solution. And
1: another feature here to mention is the uh, data lake integration, um, which maybe gets uh, GAs sometimes. Um, <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> and then I want to see it uh, in a load testing or yeah. a, a real-world high-pressure scenario, how all those data gets out of the system and not synchronizing um, the data via bring your own database no uh, exactly so, yeah
2: yeah yeah I agree completely and that's I also want to see the low level replication how how will it support entities with like uh, with overridden methods I don't see that but the, like low level tables would be very very fun to see how that works because it's a key driver for like you say high volume based I mean a lot of integration scenarios as well. The old, you basically have what you had before: uh, read-only replica of production database, where you can yeah, really yeah. build sustainable and, and uh, high high-performance um, data flows. And I think that's really a fun thing to look at and see when it becomes GA and stable and tested.
0: Yeah, I I really got an, uh, a perspective on that today because I I listened to a podcast where they there was a da- data scientist discussing different ways to to surface data in in uh, SQL contra how we did it before that we had uh, SSIS projects and and uh, different SQL databases and so on mm-hmm. and one thing that I hadn't even reflected on was that one of the first. First things he said when he discussed Azure SQL was it's crap. It's <laughs> slow as hell. It has never been fast. It, there is no way you can get it fast unless you pay a whole lot of money. And and I haven't even reflected on the fact that that it isn't because I have never we we have never had to deal with that because it's a secondary database so to speak. But their perspective was that I get more performance out of my laptop, my 10-year-old laptop, than I get from Azure SQL. It's not
2: built for that. But exactly. then he it's, purchased
1: a yeah. uh, um, um, standard uh, one database, maybe. <laughs> exactly, s <S1's> one <here. laughs> Exactly. Or a basic one. No, but what no, yeah. but,
0: but, but he actually said, that even if you choose the high-performance versions of Azure SQL you still get better performance from your laptop with one single SSD drive than you get from from Azure SQL. So in that perspective, I mean, normally, if we look at an on-premise SQL server where you have like these PCI-integrated direct storage disks uh, directly into the PCI bus, those are much, much faster it it doesn't even compare i
2: think it's it was a good solution for microsoft as a kind of a quick i mean it's called bring your own data warehouse i don't think they swung that by the by the marketing department before they released it to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, but, i mean it's still it still it was a good thing because it solved a lot of issues specifically for analysis you had you it makes my life a lot easier being able to write sql queries directly to kind of find out issues and find out data uh, and to on that note i had a, a colleague in a different project he actually built a power app to scale up and down the Azure Data Warehouse so he could scale it up during nighttime when they ran all their chunks. Then he could scale it down during daytime to save cost for that kind. So a really smart move and making use of what you have, right? So, But with that said, transitioning from BYOD and Azure SQL, it is very expensive. I run a lot of retail, high-volume transactions. It's not cheap. So if sure. you can use a data lake for that, it's much better, of course. And that now they're catching up. So... But as you say, Paul, important to to really see it in the field and see how it works before building with it. Uh, I mean, at, at least not now, but um, it's a very good step, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think we, we don't want to run this too long. I have one question when it's uh, you can rank it high or low, but what is your favorite feature in Dynamics? Um, it can be anything from like a button or the favorite feature that you like the most with Dynamics 365. Um, I'm a techie and...
1: I, I like the most uh, the whole um, ALM story behind uh, FNO. So, if you have s- set it up the right way, you do not have to care about uh, deployments to dev test, deployments to pre prod. You only have to press a button or s- simply uh, completely automate it and it runs. Yeah, sorry. so this is my favorite feature was- and all the Project management, resource scheduling thing behind Azure DevOps mm. is uh, also brilliant. Super cool,
0: great. Yep, yep. All right, so I I think we we uh, have to thank you for uh, coming and join us today. Uh, and I just wanted to check if people are more curious in what you do during the days. Where can they find uh, information about
1: you? They can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, and there they will find the. Um, my blog it was a bit quiet on my blog because i did a lot of speaking at, uh, at conferences but i'm planning to catch up on on this one right
0: cool Th- thanks for joining us
2: very nice thank you so much for coming thank you so much paul
0: thanks for having me yeah and uh, to all our listeners uh, thanks for today and bye
2: bye bye
0: bye bye